On this spectacular episode of StarPod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 63 and 64 from 1982. Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek, relates what it was like to attend the Ultimate Fantasy Convention in Houston, Texas, also known as the Con of Wrath. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss James Horner's musical score. Bert Bruce considers David Gerald's take on The Wrath of Khan. Plus, Leonard Nimoy. And more on this episode of... Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hurrah, tally-ho. Hey, baby doll. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog Magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We are on tour. You can meet us at the following events and conventions. We will be presenting panels as professional guests at DragonCon. In Atlanta, Georgia on Labor Day weekend, the Trek Track is essentially a Star Trek convention within a convention. Is that the best way you could describe the Trek Track, baby? Yeah, I think that's the best way. It's there, There's so much stuff going on just within the Trek Track that, uh, that yeah, you could just stay busy all day just with the Star Trek events. Of course, we're going to be presenting there. So if you want to meet us at a larger con, this is the way to do it. And once again, we will be in the Star Trek section of the Dragon Con Parade. And I have once again reserved some spots uh, for a group in the Star Trek Parade. So let me know if you want to join our group. It's a lot of fun. Video games, pinball, comic books, cosplay, and more at Music City Multicon, October 27th through 29th. It's a fantastic con in Middle Tennessee. A lot of pop culture, a lot of focus on video games. So if you want to feel like you're in the 1980s, definitely check out Music City Multicon. Our Trek's-giving tradition continues as we will attend Starbase Indy in Indianapolis, Indiana, November 24th through 26th. Join us for this amazing Trek family reunion. I love Starbase Indy. I describe Starbase Indy for those who weren't around to go to conventions in the 80s and 90s. This is what fan cons were before the big boys took over. You actually got time to talk to the celebrity guests. You got time to mingle and have intimate room parties, really get to know other members of fandom. We go to this con every year, and it's it's great because it is fan-run. It's, it's smaller, but you still get to meet people, and 
and you just get to walk around and see all the guests and you get to see the panels and there, there's plenty of room to, to join in. It's great. And it's STEM focused. So if you want to learn more about the intersection between real world science and Trek, this is the place to get all the information you can. And you realize that there are so many aspects of Trek that can be a reality. Starlog Magazine, issue number 63, cover day, October 1982. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. Responding to Koenig. From Susan K. James in Bethesda, Maryland. Please stop giving us the continuing saga of Walter Koenig's woes under a disguise of covering the Star Trek movie. The title actor has been always too kind and most definitely flattering to Koenig's talent and appeal. I find it alarming that he was in 25% of Wrath of Khan. That was 20% too much. Kirk is Star Trek's captain, and Shatner has the talent, appeal, looks, and charisma to be the star. Koenig's petty, sour remarks notwithstanding. It is Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly we want to see, and not Koenig's phony, accented, forever-screaming, middle-aged juvenile. Damn! Shut him down! I can't believe someone hated him that much. I In our coverage of that article... Because uh, there were five of us that were discussing that article. All of us said we were glad that Chekhov got more screen time and we got more character development out of Walter Koenig in his portrayal of Pavel Chekhov. Wow. She saw things from a totally different view. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, you can't please everybody. I mean, some people aren't going to like some characters. Oh, well. But that was pure hatred. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Ultimate Fantasy, a mixed bag. It was billed as an entertainment spectacular of the future, promising a multimedia extravaganza unlike any science fiction-dums ever seen. But the two-day Ultimate Fantasy, held on June 19th and 20th at Houston's Summit Sports Arena, left a bad taste in the mouths of many attendees and spurred a rumor mill that's been spinning ever since. This is going to be the first of numerous articles that are going to be related in issues number 63 and 64 of Starlog, highlighting what a disaster this convention was. And you're going to see, as this episode goes on, the, the publisher of Starlog... Carrie O'Quinn doesn't want to be associated with this convention. It was pure embarrassment. In Starlog number 64, we'll be taking you behind the scenes of the ultimate fantasy and unraveling this incredible story. You'll meet the members of the Starship Enterprise who ably rose above the insurmountable problems to do their darndest for the fans. Some of those rumors which we'd like to clear up pronto concern Starlog's involvement in the ultimate fantasy which some have renamed the ultimate fiasco. While we did accept advertising from the organizers, and while our own Kerry O'Quinn did accept the offer to emcee the show, 
Starlog was not involved in any way, shape, or form in the promotion, production, or financing of the event. Though that rumor has now been squashed, there are many others that are flourishing every day. Setting the stage going forward. Yeah, so Starlog knows um, what a big fiasco it was, and so, yeah, they want to distance themselves from it. Everything you want to know about the space shuttle. The space shuttle operator's manual is to spaceship travelers what the complete idiot is to Volkswagen owners, a handy volume to be referred to for whatever information you need concerning your vehicle. you got to figure this was the era of everybody being excited about the space shuttle program. If I had seen this book at a Scholastic Book Fair, I would have wanted it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, being able to, to run the space shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the topics covered include from Earth to orbit, living in space, working in space, emergency procedures, entry and landing procedures, and space shuttle missions. The book also features three foldouts and two color drawings and charts covering technical details. Yep, I would have wanted this. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Ronberry, once said, Star Trek is an attempt to say that humanity will reach maturity and wisdom on the day that it begins not just to tolerate, but take a special delight in differences in ideas and differences in life forms. Starpod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Hi there, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. And uh, we are co-hosts for two podcasts, 70s Trek and the Unofficial Trek Podcast. And this week, we read James Horner, New Melodies for the Starship Enterprise. This article was by Tom Siakcha in Starlog, October 1982, talking about uh, James Horner's, uh, James, Jane Horner's. Did you know Jane Horner wrote the soundtrack for Star Trek? <laughs> I didn't know she did, but wow. Yeah. Let me hold on a second. There's a big pile of poo in front of me and I stepped in it. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that nice? So we're talking yeah. about James Horner, of course. And in 1982, when you think about soundtracks, James Horner was not as well known as guys like John Williams or, or Jerry Goldsmith, who did the motion picture soundtrack. But um, he had worked on a couple of things, namely Battle Beyond the Stars, uh, a movie called Humanoids. I must admit, I don't remember Humanoids. Humanoids from the Deep. Or that one, too. I do remember Wolfen. I remember Wolfen. Yep, yeah. And The Hand. And he also worked on several TV shows. What's really interesting, though, is that Horner was only 28 years old. When yes, Art Bennett incredible. selected him, yes, for the Wrath of Khan. That's incredible. Uh, Nick Meyer, the director of the film, wanted to have a Horatio Hornblower in space kind of feel. That That's a very specific kind of musical quality that he was going for. Um, said Horner, the score is designed to create a feeling of tremendous speed and power for the Enterprise. And when you think about it, I, I think it does. Um, it does. Yeah. 
Bennett told Horner not to use any part of no Jerry Goldsmith's score, right? <laughs> Nothing. That didn't Nothing. exist. We're not acknowledging it. Move away from the motion picture. Um, but he could use music from the TV series. And I think it's interesting because he establishes a precedence here with the Wrath of Khan. Uh, Horner said, uh, quote, I wanted right from the start, from where the curtain first opened, to grip the audience, to tell them that they were going to see Star Trek. The fanfare draws you in immediately. You know you're going to get a good movie, unquote. And it's true at the very, very beginning. You hear it. Da, da, da. Yeah. <clears throat> da, 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 da. You know, it's there. Yeah. It was what? not there in the motion picture. No, no. Remember, he, it? they started yeah. with Ilea's theme for three minutes. As, right. And then that bang, bang. But it was like big drums. It was. Well, and Horner did say that there was only two ways he, he thought he could, you, you could do this movie and have it feel like Star Trek. And that's either show the Enterprise or do the, the fanfare from um, the original series. And, and the precedence now, it, it, and it continues, right? We hear that at the beginning of most Star Trek films. Yes. It sets the tone. This is what you're watching. And it's part of the same universe is, is what that fanfare says. And we and take even it for some of the current uh, Star Trek series too. Yeah, they, they do. It's in there and we take it for yeah. granted, right? That, that it's always part of it, but that if we were to follow the model put into place by Jerry Goldsmith, it may not have ever shown back up. You don't, you don't know for sure. Right. So thanks to James Horner for doing that. Um, Horner also played a little trick on longtime Trek fans in the music. I thought this was pretty interesting. I did too. He used the Star Trek love theme. Now he doesn't <clears throat> exactly identify the exact piece of music he's using. And there were several love scenes there right, were that we would several. hear. Yeah. When you watch the show and, Different ones pop up through. The, so I'm not exactly sure exactly which piece of music it was, but he uses this love theme when the eels are put in the helmets and then they go into the years of Chekhov and, and his captain. But he perverted it. He changed it. He altered it. And he did it so much that no one recognizes it as that theme from the 1960s. Yes, a love theme of all things. And of course, when he's describing it in the article, you 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 almost read his glee as he's describing what he's done. He thinks it's pretty funny. Yes, this twenty-eight-year-old reverts back to a fourteen-year-old boy. I, I I listened to it after reading the article, and and I listened to it again. I did too. I listened to it a third time. Uh huh. Son of a gun! I did not hear it. I didn't either. I. May Right? I didn't. Maybe I didn't. it's backwards. Maybe it's, I don't know what he did, but I didn't hear a recognizable theme from the 60s. So that's just me. Now, he also created a theme for the Enterprise. And then a second theme for when Kirk is on screen. 
and then decided, you know what? I'm going to intermingle these. And so he ended up doing that and, and they appear on screen together as if to say Kirk and the ship are one. Right. Interesting. That's a very interesting idea. I thought that was a, a very nice way to do that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And he also created a theme for Spock and it, it was the first theme that that character had ever had. And, it works really well and you will hear it later on in, in other movies down the road. Um, the producers also wanted to use that longtime classic song, amazing grace at the end of the movie when, <laughs> when Spock has died and he's in the, the tube and it gets uh, ejected into space. Horner didn't. <laughs> he did no. not want to go along with it. No. In fact, he, and he fought them. A little bit on it. The article even said he begged him. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think his point was it's, it's too much of an abrupt change in the mood and the, the musical score. This is too different. It doesn't fit, especially with the bagpipes. And it's funny how, you know, cause this might be one of those situations, you know, where you're too close to really see how it ends up. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. from our point of view, from the viewer, uh, from the fan's point of view, I think it's great. It, yeah, it literally pulls tears out of your eyes. It really does. It, using that, that song, Amazing Grace, is a, you know, and it's a song most of us have known since we were young kids. You just get what it's trying to say right, right away. And so, yes, it, it says so much in that, in that moment, maybe more than an unrecognizable theme might do. Just my two cents there. I I couldn't imagine this movie without the Amazing Grace in it. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. It's it's spot on. You know, I don't. Yeah. That doesn't always happen, but that the use of that is spot on. Well, and it was done really well too. So whether yeah. Horner had much to do with it or not, he worked it in, and it it was great. And it worked exactly. Now, writing a movie score takes time. Oh, gosh. I thought this was very interesting. John Williams, and of course, we all know how much work he put out, right, in the 70s and and early 80s. John Williams spent 12 to 14 weeks when he worked on films like Star Wars or Superman. Ken Thorne, who wrote the score for Superman 2, it took him 12 weeks, and he was still he was still using the work of John Williams. Yes. From the first movie. And it still took him 12 weeks. Yes. These, and these two are professional prolific. Yes. um, Composers. Yes. Horner comes along and he's got four and a half weeks to get it done. Hey, 28 year old kid, you want a job? Okay, great. You got to get it done in four and a half weeks. (laughs) Wow. That's crazy. And That's but not but and but it's kind of goes hand in hand with this movie, right? Because we've all heard the story of when Nick Meyer first took the job as director, they they had three different scripts. And they yeah. sat down, he sat down with Harv Bennett and a couple other people, and they took pieces from this script and pieces from that script that they liked, and then pieces over here. And Nick said, Okay, 
I'm going to go away and write this in a week. I'll be back. And he did. Where most script writers go off for four months and then come back. He came back in a week with a finished script and everybody loved it. So there you go. There are people just working hard on this film. And didn't he, um, this was one of the biggest orchestras he'd worked with to date. Yeah, it was his, his process. He says is a little different than what other composers might might do. Um, a lot of composers will sit down at a, at a piano and just sort of play and see what is coming to them. And then they'll write it down on their paper, um, you know, their scoring paper. But what Horner does is he watches the movie and it evokes in him a theme or a, or a, um, a tune, if you will. And then he scores that directly to paper. He's not playing it on the piano. It's just coming right out of his mind. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Horner remembers working on The Wrath of Khan very favorably. He says, quote, it was the most enjoyable project I've ever worked on. Everyone, Hart Bennett, Bob Salen, the actors were great to work with. Um, and he says, uh, before working on The Wrath of Khan, or I should say the article, excuse me, goes on to say before Horner had worked on The Wrath of Khan, he had worked with Star Trek music, sort of. He he had been hired before by legendary horror director Roger Corman. Yes. To score Battle Beyond the Stars. And that's that's the movie, right, that came out after Star Wars. It was kind of a Star Wars knockoff. Right, right. It had starred Richard Thomas, right? John Boy from the Wall. Yes. And it, you could tell it was kind of a knockoff, but whatever. It is what it is. But James Horner scored that movie. And Corman said to him, hey, um, I like Star Trek and I like The Magnificent Seven. Can you kind of take this, the themes from those two and put them together? And that's what I'd like to have in my movie. And that's what Horner did. Now, I can't imagine two such different movies, right, as Star yes. Trek or, or movies, uh, things, as Star Trek and The Magnificent Seven. But somehow he was <laughs> able to bring them together. So he had worked on Star Trek music, sort of, prior to working on The Wrath of Khan. So funny. That was. Uh, at the end of this article, uh, when asked if Horner would consider scoring a Star Trek movie again, he answered, for me not to do it, I'd have to be in a bad accident or get killed. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a 28-year-old kid, isn't it? Yes, it definitely. <laughs> I got a kick out of, of, of reading that article. Um, it's fun to think back about the first time you hear that music, it remains when it comes to Star Trek movies, James Horner's work is my favorite. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know why. I, and I don't mean to knock Jerry Goldsmith or any of the other composers because Goldsmith did an incredible score for the motion picture, but there's something about the music in the wrath of Khan. And then the music that is based on it in the search for Spock that just it's unique. It's different. It's almost a breath of fresh air. I wish the theme had been used in other um, TOS movies later, but 
we keep changing the, you know, the score and the, uh, and the, the themes down the road. Yeah. James Horner. He's right up there for me. Back in college, when we're rooming together, when we wanted some music to listen to, <laughs> whether it was a road trip or studying or, you know, just us being goofy, we would throw in or put on the record or yeah. the CD of Wrath of Khan. And, and it was, of course, we were, we were saying the lines as the, as the, uh, the CD was playing. You remember? <laughs> That's true. We did. And it just, you know, we did. I forgot that. place in my heart. It, it absolutely does. It's actually great music to study to. It is. Because it, you know, it, it, it clears your mind. You know, the, the points were like the battle and the, and the nebula, like that's awesome stuff. It gives you energy, you know? Yep. And then when you go and, and move on to Star Trek three, what's well, all based on, you know, it's all Horner's work and then it's added to still right. great stuff. Great, great stuff. So, yep. Leonard Nimoy. A candid conversation about the world's most popular science fiction character with the man who makes him live. This article begins by stating, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is a huge success both critically and at the box office. Reviewers and fans agree that this is what Star Trek can be and should be in feature film form. Like most involved in the project, Leonard Nimoy is extremely pleased and yet at the same time not at all surprised by the results. Why is he not at all surprised? Yeah, well, he can say that now, now that the movie's been out. But, I mean, I'm sure he, he, he knew that it was a good script going in. And he, you know, and he, he had a say in, in how the Spock character was handled in the movie. And when we counter what was going on with the motion picture, there wasn't any back and forth. Is it a TV movie? Is it a TV series? Is it a motion picture? Is it a, a special? It's like, this was cut and dry. Here's the script. This is what it's going to be. Let's move on with our lives. Everyone who was involved in the motion picture relates how frustrating it was with the daily rewrites, with the constant back and forth. So when they made the Wrath of Khan, it was more stable. They, they were able to um, lay down the guidelines and then, like, this is the movie that we're making. Now, when asked about the death of Spock and if it was handled correctly... He responds by saying, I think it was done with some style. I'm still having trouble personally being terribly objective by it. I think I'd have to see the film another three or four times to really get some perspective. I've only seen the film twice, once with an invited audience, cast and crew, and once in Boston on open day with a paying audience. There's a lot to be absorbed. So that's interesting. Yeah, only seen it twice. So, so, yeah, so he's saying it's hard to be objective, which I guess I can see. Yeah, because he was, I mean, he played the character. So it's hard to, to see it from, from our point of view as, as fans. I mean, I can understand that. And even then, how he expressed that he has to see it more, we know that William Shatner only watches Trek when he has to. He has a total disconnect as an actor. He's expressed he doesn't even like seeing himself on screen. Whereas Leonard actually is taking time to absorb it all, to let it sink in. Right. They they just have a different approach. Because, totally different approach. Because, you know, cause yeah. I don't want to say that, that it's bad that William Shatner doesn't want to watch it because it's, that's his, 
his style it, and it, it's something that works for him. But, but yeah, but I do like that Leonard Nimoy w- wants to watch it. And, and I've heard him say this in interviews before. Um, when he's watching it, he can get ideas for, for future movies of the way he wants to play it. You know, watching himself the way he played it, you know, he, he gets more ideas. Well, we just saw Vincent D'Onofrio recently at a convention, and he says, I can't watch myself on screen. A lot of actors right. are like that. I can see it's, that. Some people don't want to see themselves. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they might be too critical of themselves. They kind of cringe when they see themselves in, in doing their, their acting on screen. Yes. And so Bill has, in a previous Starlog article, related that, that it's very difficult for him to see himself, whereas Leonard is, takes a totally different path. He goes on to say, I found myself being moved by the scene early, very early, at about the point where Kirk says to Scott something about, you have to get us out of here in three minutes or we'll all be dead. You see Spock hear that and react. I'm already feeling emotional about what's coming, and I feel the same way when we were making the picture. Terribly emotional about it, and really came within a hair's breadth of walking off the lot rather than playing the scene. The day when we were going to shoot it, I was very edgy about it and scared of it, scared of playing it, almost looking for an excuse not to, finding something to pick an argument about. It was a very tense time, and I still feel that way seeing it. I think it works very, very well. It's a moving scene, and I'm pleased with it in the context of the film. I'm glad we did it. I think we did it well, and I think we did it honestly and sincerely. Yeah, so that's interesting that he didn't want to do it. It, it it's probably because I think I think he reached the point there where he didn't want Spock to die, even though he 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 did want Spock to die at first because he didn't want to continue playing him. But he, you know, and he has talked about this how he during the making of the movie he realized he maybe he did want to keep continuing to play Spock. But that is interesting. Like, how how can he not do the scene? Maybe he'll pick a fight or something. That that was pretty funny. But yeah, I can see it. Like, maybe he didn't want it to end, and that that's kind of it's kind of sad. It's very poignant when you think about it. And it's funny how we're recording this podcast, and we were looking through this issue of Starlog issue sixty three, which has E. T. on the cover, and remember. Two of the biggest movies in 1982 were Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and E.T. Notice what he has to say about this. He says, It's fascinating to me because, in a strange way, it parallels the E.T. story. There's a very interesting parallel that takes place in E.T. within the picture. It seems like what's happening here is that people are assuming that we're doing the same kind of thing over a longer period of time. Interesting. So talking about the the sacrifice of E.T., and the connection that the audience has with a character. It took a long time for us to build up our love for Spock. Yes. Right? E.T., it was essentially an hour and a half, two hours. But the fact that you know, when I look back, there were two times that I cried in a movie theater in 1982, when E.T. died and when Spock died. Isn't that interesting? Yes. And that that's the reason they, you know, now you see the, the meme going around about, um, Easter being when so- someone died and rose again on the third movie, and it's about yeah. Spock. Yeah, yeah that that is that is a, a very interesting thought. And how those in the crew were crying when Spock died. What do we know about reading Starlog about the crew of ET? That the crew was was crying when ET died. Yeah, just just when when they were making that movie, 
with a character they didn't even know before the movie, but they got so attached to him during the making of the movie that they cried when he died. So yes. this one magazine has parallel accounts of two different movies. How crazy is that? It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like no one ever, no one would ever put two and two together, especially when they were creating movies during that time period. And Leonard Nimoy goes on to talk about Harv Bennett saying that Har was the driving force in the improved relationship with the studio because Leonard wasn't involved in any of the meetings with Paramount. But Harv did tell him from time to time what he had in mind, what he was trying to do, and it sounded to him like Har was on the right track and had a good sense of where the best of Star Trek was and how to use them the best. He also felt the same way about Nicholas Meyer, his policy on scripts, his attitude, and the posture of Spock's character. So you had two guys here, which is really interesting to consider. Harv Bennett, who does not call himself a Star Trek fan. We found that out in the interviews earlier on in Starlog. Same thing with Nicholas Meyer. Does not consider himself a Star Trek fan. He's more of a nautical adventure fan. But they were able to respect the Spock character and talk to Leonard about it. And it is amazing that these... You know, the people in charge that weren't fans that can, that made such a great movie that the fans loved. And because we talk about it now with the, with the current Trek shows and a lot of the people in charge are, are not fans and not really making good shows. So yeah, that, that is interesting. But, but you see, they, they knew to talk to, to Leonard Nimoy about his character. Talk to someone who knows exactly. Right. Exactly. And it's that intersection that made this movie so fantastic. They're throwing different elements together, different perspectives together, but at the core, no one knows Spock more than Leonard because essentially he helped develop the character. He was more than simply an actor. And I think the the way he died, you know, sacrificing himself, I mean, that was the way to do it instead of just having Khan kill him or something like that. So, so the you know, that, that was another thing that, that everyone loved about the movie. Like, we didn't want him to die, but but if he did die, that had to be the way to do it. He concludes by saying, I was delighted. Every day was exciting on this project, and I think I made a better contribution because of that. And he had such a great time that he, you know, came back into the next movie. Greetings, it's Bill. And Jeremy. With The Final Frontiersman, we're a YouTube channel about Star Trek with a heavy focus on the Star Trek Adventures role-playing game. Come join us as we discuss all Trek topics such as reviews, cosplay, and more. Find us on YouTube under The Final Frontiersman. Let's see what's out there. Star Trek II, T-O-O. Just recently, my favorite comedian is Burt Kreischer. Burt Kreischer has done a movie about uh, his uh, college experience going to Russia and joining the Russian Mafia. It's called The Machine. And I have been anticipating this movie for probably going on two years. I haven't had this same feeling about a movie since Star Trek II. I didn't get really super excited over George Lucas's Phantom Menace. Obviously, the last three Star, Tra Star Wars sequels didn't do it for me. Less said about them, the better. Very few movies have caused me the extreme sensation of anticipation as Star Trek II did. We all knew it was coming. We all heard the, we read the rumors in Starlog, and we were very excited to see it. 
I felt the same way about this current movie, The Machine with Kreischer, my favorite comedian, and uh, he surpassed expectations. But I remembered way back to 1982 feeling the exact same way. So how does that apply to this article and what's up with that? David Gerald had the same experience. Now, in the beginning, very preface of the article, David Gerald is positing about Spock in Star Trek The Motionless Picture. Spock, of course, mind melds with the V'ger and has an epiphany. He grabs Kirk's hand and says, the simple feeling that you and I are experiencing, V'ger can never, ever experience because it's just a cold, unthinking machine. And Spock has uh, the revelation that logic isn't the be-all and end-all. In other words, logic is, you know, it serves its purpose, but without that connection, without our uh, having... uh, interactions and a feeling for our fellow man and obviously Kirk's family I'm sorry Spock and Kirk and McCoy are triumvirate and a family of their own but these men were family to each other and that's a beautiful sentiment and that's why we love Star Trek anyway so fast forward David Gerald sitting by the phone thinking about Star Trek the motion picture and who calls him but Harv Bennett the producer of Star Trek 2 he says hey by the way we're showing Star Trek II for Ricardo Montalban. Would you like to come see it Thursday night? And, of course, old Harlan, it is Thursday night. He says, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. David Gerald says, would I, would I, would I? And uh, he proceeds to call a bunch of friends who are not home. Wouldn't you hate to miss that phone call? Hey, you want to go see Star Trek and you're not home? These are the days, of course, with no cell phones. So if you weren't home to receive your phone call, there were no beepers, no cell phones, no telegraph machine. If you missed a call, you really missed a call. So anyway, he finally gets hold of a couple other friends in Harlan Ellison, and they all proceed to uh, stock up on snacks for the movie, and they head to the Paramount lot, and they get invited in. And, of course, Ricardo Montalban's there, and so is Nicholas Meyer, the director and writer, and, of course, Harv Bennett, and they are excited. And this is where I like the article the most. Because we're all so critical and we're all so ready to pounce on things, even in this day and age. Everything we watch, everything we, you know, consume as far as content, we're quick to judge. And we all have an opinion and we all get on social media and say, oh, it stinks or, you know, it's not as good as it used to be or this, that or the other. We're all very critical little uh, Roger Eberts and Gene Siskels. And that's not for the best. I mean, sometimes you just got to let a movie happen and just enjoy it for the sake of enjoying a movie. But unfortunately, we've been raised to uh, have an opinion about everything, and I'm as guilty as anyone else. But David Gerald says, look, turn your brain off. Let the movie wash over you. Have a good time. And then uh, they uh, proceed to uh, start the movie. And uh, this is where it says in the article, he says... uh, If you're the kind of person that goes to a movie to look for things wrong with it, you will certainly find a lot to be disappointed with in Star Trek II. Nitpickers will have a field day with Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. In fact, several times during the course of the picture, the little voice in the back of my David Gerald's head, the one who tends to be hypercritical, stood up and said, Hey, but but that's not scientifically accurate. And I just turned to my little voice and said, Shut up, I'm watching Star Trek. It shut up, and I went back to the movie, and I was a kid again at my favorite Saturday matinee. I loved it. 
It's a big, fat, silly movie, as gaudy as a Christmas tree. It is chock full of pretty lights and flashing gym crackers. It has all kinds of delicious technical readouts and intriguingly Baroque hardware. It is tacky and overpainted and totally wonderful. I'm going to have to agree with that. I don't I can't find fault with that. When you're at Star Trek II, yeah, you, can you find fault? Would the two ships pull up to each other and proceed to phaser the hell out of each other? Probably not. Would Kirk get that close up to the Reliant? Uh, you don't really need to be that close to the Reliant because you've got uh, communications that you can just pop up on the screen and you can be, you know, probably a light year away from each other and still be able to communicate. And Kirk just goes on his merry way saying, okay, let him come close. And uh, that is a flaw in the movie. I'm not going to fault him because, you know, you're all in the Starfleet and, you know, it's the last thing you'd think, hey, you know, maybe I better put my shields up. You just, it doesn't occur to you. But I'll tell you what, after Kirk's uh, encounter with the uh, Noonien Singh, I'll bet you from that time forward, it's standard operating procedure. If someone doesn't hail you back, you put the shields up. Put your shields up and you put your yellow alert on and you say, you know, you figure it out. You don't take a chance. But anyway, we wouldn't have much of a movie if the Enterprise didn't get uh, torn up with the, the uh, phasers. Wouldn't be much of a movie if Khan didn't get partial revenge. So anyway, okay, enough nitpicky. He goes on to uh, praise all the actors in it, from uh, Shatner, who's uh, thinking about his mortality, to uh, Spock, who's a kinder, gentler Spock, who's not so critical of uh, human beings and uh, trying to figure them out. He gives significant praise to DeForest Kelly. High marks also to DeForest Kelly, the best galactic quack this side of the clouds of Magellan. There are numerous opportunities for him to say the immortal words, he's dead, Jim, in this picture, but somebody had a lot of willpower. He never does. In fact, Dr. Kelly DeForest, Dr. DeForest Kelly, brings his usual good humor and grace to the role of Dr. McCoy. And there's no question that he's still my favorite character aboard the Enterprise. Indeed, he has several of the best lines in the picture. For those readers who have not yet seen the picture, I will not spoil any of those lines by revealing them. And again, this is pre the days of where we all want to spoil a plot now. I'm a big uh, fan of Succession. And I swear, as soon as that show gets done on Sunday night, everybody's on Facebook giving their opinions and spoiling the plot for people who may not have seen it. So that's... Uh, the problem was endemic back in 1982, as it is now, except that now we have immediate return on our investment. In other words, what I'm saying is, all right, you like succession? Well, guess what? Ten minutes after that show, well, during the show, you can start reading, uh, you know, on Twitter or what have you. You can read people's opinions on, oh, I didn't like that at all, or oh, I love that, or oh, Logan's dead. So back in Starlog's day, you had to wait month to month to get your plot spoilers because there was no... There was no computer. There were no bulletin board systems. There were no, uh, there were no spoilers. He praises the effects. He praises Jimmy Doohan. He praises, even though Uhura and Sulu don't get a lot to do, he said it's nice to see them on the bridge and that they're, uh, they're very, uh, it's good that they're on the, in the, in the, uh, movie. The, he does miss, uh, Dr. Chapel and, uh, Janice Rand, the yeoman. He says that they are missed and he wished they were there. He also gives high praise to Kirstie Alley. 
He says, I also want to note the performance of Kirstie Alley. She's gorgeous. I'm in love again as Miss, uh, yes, Mr. Savick, half Vulcan, half Romulan. And then Merritt Mer- Butrick, I can never say this guy's name is David Marcus. Kirk's a legitimate bastard son. He he liked them both. So uh, I'm already 10 minutes in. I'll just sum up real quick to say that, of course, Spock dies. And he's very sad about Spock's death. But his main uh, thought is that they better not bring Spock back to life. And if they do so, it better mean something. Which we've talked about several times here. That if you're going to have Spock die, and they do, then he really was not looking forward to Spock coming back magically. Like, uh, you know, after three days in a cave. Which, no blasphemy to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there are a little bit of parallels there. A little bit of parallels. But, you know, is Christ, I mean, is Mr. Spock a messianic figure? I don't think so. I mean, he goes on to do, you know, wonderful things in the part. And he tries to, you know, create peace in the galaxy. But he causes a lot of chaos, too. He does. Let's look at Spock and Cybok. That's a, that's a quite a little inter, interesting movie. Anyway, that's my time. I hope that you enjoyed uh, Star Trek II. I enjoyed the article very much. Read the David Gerald articles like that all day long and enjoy Starlog, people. Starlog, Starlog forever. forever! Greetings, fellow lifeforms. This is David Neil Miller, creator and producer of Star Trek Amazons, a Star Trek fan film. Available on YouTube. And this is StarPod Trek. So let's talk about some events that we were involved in recently. In fact, Cutie Pie, you were involved doing some voiceover work for an independent Star Trek production. Let's talk about that. So there was this animated Star Trek fan film called Amazons. And I did a voice in it. I did the voice of... The a character called Okuda, which was neat. I thought, oh, great, I get to be an Okuda. <laughs> and um, so it's a pretty neat film. It's about a ship that has an all-female crew. So it's it's a great animated film uh, made by David Miller. And so it's it's available out there on YouTube now. Go check it out. Look at our show notes for a link to that. Also, we were involved in the activities at our local comic book store, The Great Escape in Nashville, Tennessee, for Free Comic Book Day. So, and of course, you know, Free Comic Book Day is an annual event that comic stores already, always have the um, the first week or the first Saturday in May. And they don't always have a Star Trek comic, but this year they did have a Star Trek comic. So we set up a table for the USS Athena. And the comic, the Star Trek comic this year was called Day of Blood. So this is a prequel to a storyline that will be in IDW Comics series and we collect all the star trek comics we have that in our poll list so we are looking forward to day of blood this prelude super interesting and it has some lower decks content in there as well so what was it like handing out comics to other fans interacting with fans in uniform with a bunch of our friends so we had several members of the uss athena uh they're helping out we were all in costume and so it, it was a lot of fun. So all all these people coming in. Now, now, of course, not everybody in the comic book store was a Star Trek fan. But, you know, we we talked to people. We were So it was just fun meeting people. And, and some people wanted pictures with us. 
we brought we brought several of our props, the um, phaser communicator and a batleth. And, of course, the kids love the batleth. And so a lot of people wanted a picture with the batleth. And it was just great fun. Also, we attended MetrothamCon, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Fantastic multimedia convention. Guest star? Jonathan Frakes. He was the main Star Trek guest there. And we had a lot of fun there. We set up a fan table and met a lot of people and recruited some more people for the USS Athena. And seeing Jonathan Frakes do his panel, um, I mean, he was awesome. You know, he's just a great speaker. And he's gotten better over the years. He even admits that when he first started doing conventions, he was nervous. He didn't know what to expect. Now, he is so hysterical. It's almost like a one-man comedy show. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Yeah, he was funny. He was, you know, talking about the, like, like doing the Riker sit with his leg over the chair and saying that it was, it's a jerk move or something. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't even realize he did it at first. So yeah, it was just a lot of fun. So this is a great, uh, fan run con. Yeah, we look forward to attending it next year as well and recommend our listeners check out Metrotham Con. <laughs> Wendy's is giving away free nights at Astroworld. Pick up your free coupon at any Wendy's. When you buy one all-day ticket at Astroworld, present the coupon for a second night free. Come on, escape and come away. Come to Astroworld for the fun. Explore the far reaches of the universe with the Starship Enterprise and Wendy's. Because right now, with the purchase of a Wendy's Fun Pack meal, you'll receive a free Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan movie poster. Imagine it. You get just the right size Wendy's hamburger, french fries, and soft drink or frosty, plus this exciting color wall poster free. So beam yourself to Wendy's for a Fun Pack meal that's truly out of this world. But be careful. The Wrath of Khan awaits you. Starlog Magazine, issue number 64, cover date November 1982. From the Bridge, The Con of Wrath. So this is an editorial by Kerry O'Quinn, the publisher, pretty much denouncing his involvement in the Ultimate Fantasy Convention, stating that he was worried from the start and that there were problems from the beginning but he essentially ignored them. He had hoped that the ultimate fantasy would absolutely be incredible. Yeah, very interesting. He he was a part of of the show, the ultimate fantasy. He was he was the MC, and you know when they asked him to do it, he was happy to do it. But then, but then you know because the whole thing seemed so disorganized and didn't go over well, he he just wants to say that he was not the one in charge. He he was just there. You know he was. You know, sort of a victim of it like everyone else. And he goes on to say that there's a special section in this issue to outline what exactly happened at the Ultimate Fantasy Convention. And boy, our listeners are in for an earful. This is Nicholas Meyer, and you are listening to Star Pod Trek, the podcast that celebrates Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. The Ultimate Fantasy Report. For this segment, we would like to welcome back to the show Dr. Trek himself, Larry Nemechek. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Well, hey, guys. It's good to be – it's been a while, but it's good to be back. Larry, we know that you have direct connection to this ultimate fantasy, 
as Starlog readers and have we've been reporting on Starlog issues continuously. We've noticed that there have been full page ads running for this ultimate fantasy. Mm-hmm. The buildup for this convention was amazing. So you being someone who was there at this amazing convention back in 1982, we have to ask, first of all, how did you find out about it? Well, it's funny the way you say that because I found out about it the same way you found out about it. Uh, I found out about it from the those big full-page ads in Starlog. Yeah, and got all excited. And mainly because when I was back then before, you know, fandom was still – you were still in the closet a little bit if you were a Star Trek fan. But, you know, people – it was on so many stations every day after school. And, re- and we're talking about one Star Trek, no bloody A, B, C, or D, no next generation, no nothing. Uh, a couple of movies down, and especially by the the, the uh, Con of Wrath, as we as the nicknames became. Uh, but for the Ultimate Fantasy Weekend, which was this special show that was piggybacked as a side ticket onto the regular Houston Con, which was their convention, their big all all genres, all everything convention at the time. No, I was I was growing up in Oklahoma, Central Oklahoma, around Norman and Oklahoma City. This was in Houston. And when I was a kid in the early conventions, you know, everything was New York or it was L.A. And I was in the big podunk middle of the country. And then I'd hear about maybe in Chicago and, you know, and I thought, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't have the capacity, the transportation, the money to get to a big city. But when I first saw these ads, they were exciting. I was out of college and just working um, and trying to figure out what to do with my life. But this came along when I finally had enough wherewithal to be able to travel a little bit. And the fact that it was Houston, which was like, you know, six to eight hours away, uh, that went, it was exciting. And the fact that it was going to be all these names, that just blew me out of the water, supposedly everybody. You must have been totally excited. So, like, like, was it your first convention? It was my first convention out of town. Like, we had, ah, yeah. I think in, yeah, I think in 78 was my first, like, go spend the night convention. And my first thought, my mom didn't drive me convention, you know, um, and I went and I, uh, yeah, went with some buddies and for, you know, or you'd be close by and go for a day or something. But we I'd been to overnight cons. But this was the first time I drove and I went with my little brother and two friends and we drove. It was a big road trip. So we were like, you know, feeling our oats and I was working. So I had a little, you know, wasn't much, but it was a little bit of extra income. I felt like I was like a real person in the world now, not just a student anyway, but that was all the excitement of um, going down. And the fact that it was going to be all the actors, you know, Nimoy wasn't included. And there's even the story about that, which is funny, but you know, I didn't know that at the time, it was just going to be this amazing, exciting thing. And, and my gosh, it's full page ads and Starlog. So it must be Huge and well-made and well-produced and official, semi-official. And, Har- <laughs> and Harv Bennett was going to be there, too. On top of all the cast, he had just gotten famous as you know, the producer, not the director. Nick Meyer directed Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But Harv Bennett was out in fa- as, as the new producer of Star Trek, and we knew Gene Roddenberry had been you know, in, the, in your fan mind at the time. Some might say demoted. But he was still very much part of that and speaking out about it. And we'd had the whole, you know, Spock is going to die rumors and then confirmed. And then the protest movement that protested Spock dying. And they took out – they did a marketing – a professional marketing study and said, you know, Paramount, if you – if Spock is killed off in the movie, you will lose, you know, 39% of your potential box office and you will lose 63% of your licensing revenues from books and comics and games and, you know – 
and they tried to do that. And but you know, Leonard had already changed his mind, and we didn't know. You know, we didn't know they'd already decided that he had decided. Oh, okay, I'll come back. We didn't know that Leonard was the one that demanded he be killed. You know, all that. And Gene didn't want anybody to blame him for doing it. So he was trying. He didn't want to sink the franchise, but he wanted it to be known that he wasn't his idea. And uh, and then he, you know, really he's the one that leaked it so that, that maybe there would be a groundswell of fan outrage. And, you know, things are small. But this is, you know, before computers and Internet and social media. And you had newsletters on paper mailed with stamps and you had people getting together in their fan club meetings and then conventions. And that's, you know, and then newsletters and fanzine letter columns. And then people would write letters to Starlog, too. But, the, you know, that's a, that was a two month, three month thing. But over that time. The year before the movie came out, there had been all this drama, melodrama about Spock. So anyway, so – and then when it debuted, people fell in love with the movie, and the the phrase I remember hearing – I think the New York Times reviewer said, now that's more like it for Star Trek II compared to the motion picture, even though a lot of people still love the motion picture. But all of that was what was you know in the mix. But we weren't – you know, Star Trek wasn't a juggernaut. There was no guarantee that we would even – you know, the – Fandom existed to just bring it back. You were celebrating it as a fan, but the main mission of the first 10 years of fandom was bring it back. And we had all the dance about, will it be a movie? Will it be a big movie? Will it be a new series? Will it be an even bigger movie? So we, they wound up going with the movie route, and this was the second one. But um, so that was the times, you know, we lived in. We didn't have, we weren't texting and tweeting about it. Uh, you had to hear somebody, you had to hear the rumor mill. Or maybe you would read – or you know, maybe, maybe if it was big enough, there would be a story on, say, Entertainment Tonight, which itself was pretty new. You know, the daily you know, half-hour syndicated recap that came out of Paramount. So the, Entertainment Tonight always had the close – the leaks and the, the hot story because it was a Paramount entity. So they would let their own in-house show have the news first. So anyway, that was what was going on. So yeah, we were all excited to go, and uh, everybody was going, and so it must be – it must be a well-planned, you know, huge official deal. And, and of course, we were surprised. <laughs> <laughs> now, also to put it in context as well, this was a time period that conventions were primarily held in hotels. From what I understand, too, is that if you had five or 6,000 people at a convention, that was considered a ginormous success. So yes. to have something inside of a major arena that could hold upwards of 17,000 people must mm -hmm. have been mind-blowing. Well, see, now here's the thing again. On one hand, the arena was for the show. So the show, the ultimate fantasy, was uh, like a two-hour show. It was a side ticket. It was like going to see a rock show you know, or a musical or something. Um, and you had a separate ticket, which, you know, before Ticket Ticketron was the competitive ticket master, and that's who had it. And you remember in those days, you know, before before the web, people would you could order on an eight hundred number, or you could call because long distance was still a thing, right? They had lots of like local numbers, or they would sell tickets at like local Sears and Montgomery Wards. Do you remember this? That's so right. They, that's right. Would, I, I grew up in yeah. Connecticut, and I remember mm -hmm. tickets being sold at this place called the Rubber Match, and it, and it was a, a futon <laughs> store of all places, and they would sell tickets <laughs> to, to concerts there. So it was like yeah. they had they would they would have advertisements on TV saying tickets available at all Ticketron Ticketmaster outlets. Mm -hmm. And all outlets meant who's an affiliate we can you know we're going to pay them 
a dollar a ticket. You know, it's just the way you pay a service fee now. You know, if they if it was somewhere near you, you could and you could go to the box office of whatever the official place was, but that might be a big pain. And if you lived across town or you lived a few counties away or you lived in other states and you wanted that, but they would also make deals with. I remember Sears, Montgomery Wards, the big chain places you could go in. In fact, there's somebody that my so we were working on a documentary for this for the last few years and it's been on pause. We're getting back into it. But one of the people I interviewed for it was talking about the whole drama of she was going to be uh, – yeah, she. She was going to be the first in line when the tickets went on sale at her local Sears. And so she was like at the Sears door at 8 a.m. or whatever just to march down to the you know, little office inside and buy, buy her ticket for this. And she was expecting there to be – it was the first day, and it was national. <laughs> and she was expecting to be like fighting off hordes of people. And she's like, well, my first clue was when I showed up the first hour to get this, and I was the only person there. And they had to go, what? You? Oh, is that a thing? Oh, oh, here they are, you know, and found their bundle of tickets together. <laughs> but no, it, yeah, you had so you had those so those local outlets like your futon store, the way they would do tickets for things like they might make fifty cents a ticket, you know, their little commission on the side. But that's how, that's how even you know even before eight hundred numbers and and will call, you know. Well, I mean, there was will call, but a lot of people didn't want to be standing in line with a thousand people, they thought, to pick up their will call tickets. So people that wanted to have their tickets in hand, that's what they did. So when you arrived for the, for the show, then what was your first clue that something was wrong, that it wasn't going as they had planned? <laughs> well, the first clue was we pull up. So, oh, what I should have said was, to clarify, so the show, The Ultimate Fantasy which I always thought was funny because today you, it sounds like an 80s porn title or something. But it was the ultimate fantasy of having the entire cast together finally, which they there was another convention that came close that Walter Koenig wasn't part of because he had promised another person that he would be at his show before this came about. So they had the entire all cast except for Walter. Now, this was going to be the entire cast, plus even Kirstie Alley and Merritt Buttrick from, from The Wrath of Khan. And and Harb Bennett, you know, the new producer. But they they couldn't get Leonard to come because Leonard was in his I want to get away from Spock and and, you know, I want to be killed off and not be in anymore. Well, as they got closer in, of course, Leonard changed his mind. They came up with the ending for the movie that set up the search for Spock. And when he tied it into being able to, to you know, to leverage that into being a director, then he saw the worth in it. And he was also starting to turn the corner about realizing he wasn't just a you know, uh, a, a fan obsession that he, that Spock, Star Trek and Spock were really affecting people's lives and changing lives and, and being a force for good. Uh, whether it was inspiring people to go into careers or people who had not the best lives, it gave them something to hope in and, you know, or look up the characters. It wasn't just people screaming, wanting, you know, yank off his ears or get an autograph or something. And when he turned, his attitude turned in time to, you know, tweak the ending of the movie, he also changed his mind about coming to Houston. So if he'd come, he would it would have been an entire first cast, all the cast for the first time together in one place. And when he called, as we found out as we were recent, when he called with about two weeks to go, he called and said, well, I've changed my mind. I'd like to come. And they actually said, oh, we've already got the programs and the ads and everything printed up. We're going to take this on the road. And we'll have you join us on the road. We're going to add. Yeah, we, we have the program, and it lists 
uh, cities that it's going to go to mm-hmm. next. It was going to go to New York. It was mm-hmm. going to hit like a series of cities. Vegas and L.A. and you know all the you know, Chicago, all the major cities you would think a major touring show would go to. Just you know makes sense population wise. But what's so? <laughs> he said, "Okay, I've changed my mind. I'll come." And they said, "No." We've already got like all these mundane logistical. Things. We've already got the programs printed and the posters and the ads are made up. So we're gonna, you know, and Ricardo Montalban wants to join us too. So we'll we'll add you guys in, and we'll, which is insane. That's that's a very 1982 way about it because today they would say, "Oh my God, this is great." Okay, so we won't tell anyone, and you will walk out on stage, and Twitter will just melt down. Because it was a complete surprise. Well, there was no Twitter then. There was no way to leverage it aside from the people in the room and, and you know, and just the legend status. So today you hear, I mean, there's so many things. It's like watching an old movie with the plot of what went wrong with this this weekend, this arena show, and then the convention that it was tethered to. But it's like watching an old movie where you stop and you think, you know, if they I'm watching I'm watching The Big Sleep with Bogey. I'm watching something, and you think, you know, if they just had cell phones, this plot, you know, this movie wouldn't have happened. <laughs> you know, it's a good thing they didn't have cell yeah. phones. This wouldn't have been a, a this, none of this movie would have happened. They would somebody would have called and texted, and that would have been the end of it. And that's a little bit the way this was. One of the things would have been if if they just had you know better communications, some things would have happened uh, that didn't happen. But Aside from the arena show that we think about, the regular Houston Con was a separate event that had its own guests and wasn't a Star It had Star Trek guests, but Mark Leonard was actually in the budget as a guest of the convention. And uh, But they had other people too. So as you could get from the Starlog story there. And it was, you know, it was, it was comics and it was old time radio and Westerns and collectibles and sci-fi. And the movie, you know, the Star Wars had been out and it, well, it was five years into the sci-fi boom, you know, Close Encounters. And 1982 was the biggest geek year ever because you're getting Tron and you're getting, I don't know, go down the list. So it was yeah, a big. E.T. I mean, it was, yeah. it was oh, yeah. on E.T. and the Barbarian. Yes, yes. It was, it was yes. just an amazing year to, to, to be a sci-fi fan. So that's just so the regular Houston Con was catering to all that. Maybe not so much with guests. They had five or six paid guests, but, you know, a lot of authors and artists like a old school sci-fi con would be but they were open to media they didn't have any snobbery about having actors in so that was the convention that was that was at the old shamrock hilton hotel as you said hotel you know it's funny um you you said hotel con and we talk about that now since the rise of the comic cons in convention centers that's a term but it's the first time or two i heard that it was like it's like the first time i heard somebody say a corded phone I started to say, well, yeah, oh, no, we have cordless phones. You know, we have smartphones. We're so untethered with our phones, we had to come up with a term to talk about old school, <laughs> you know, rotary and dial. But corded phones was a term we – it's just like we didn't say TOS for the original series until TNG. We didn't need to, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of old Star Trek when <laughs> TNG came out. <laughs> And then they well, made the had... classic Star Trek, and then they changed it to, to to the original series. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't corporate. They didn't come from Paramount. That was organic. You know, fans. You know, there was a time when people were calling it. Well, it's funny to see this term back, talking about the the Kurtzman era of Star, the new in you Trek, and most of the time it's derogatory. But that was the term that ne- they tried to apply to Next Generation New Trek, and it mostly in a disparaging way. And a lot of it was because of the whole New Coke. You know, new Coke and classic Coke thing had happened. The debacle had happened, 
and New Coke became this marketing fiasco. So people were, sla- you know, I, I think that's not part of the picture now. But in 1987, calling TNG New Coke was a way to slam it. But there was that was a thing that was out there. And a lot of people that were classic Trek. And that just was, so TOS was what came out of fandom organically. So we had TNG and TOS, and it was kind of elegant that way. You know, it made sense. And then people said, oh, we can call the animated series TAS. Oh, okay. And now it's funny to watch people debate what the official three-letter code for every show is going to be. That's kind of funny. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, again, so, yeah, so it was it, – That's but that's the – that was – anyway, Hotel Con, yes. The, here's a, the idea that a convention would be in a convention center was – where are those people – there wasn't enough – there weren't enough bodies to justify – Fandom was not on that scale. It took, you know, it took even the Star Wars boom of the 90s, even, you know, the 80s and 90s wasn't big enough for that. It was, it took the Comic-Con revolution from Marvel and DC and the anime, all that combining to make, you know, the the modern Comic-Con world, what we've, and Hollywood getting involved and pumping in money, you know, we think Marvel, but some people go back and say it was the Twilight movies that made San Diego Comic-Con become a cultural thing. And because the money was there. And once there's big bucks connected, then the world sits up and pays attention. And instead of making fun of those Trekkies and those sci-fi fans, chambers of commerce are falling all over themselves, you know, to help out people find a location, a convention center, you know, to put it on and bring that money to town. Cause they're also spending, you know, restaurants and hotels and all that. So that's the world. But yes, back then, up until 10, 15 years ago, most 99% of anything like this was going to be in a hotel. And you'd get your, you know, the promoters would get the room rate to try to give people a, you know, a, a, a discount on their rooms and all of that kind of thing. And they were always so, worried so about be, Since you brought up money, I just have to ask yeah. you I'm looking at the prices for these and, and <laughs> these packages, and they're these, outrageous. They're $350, $500. So you're looking – if you did a conversion in today's money, they'd be anywhere between $1,000 and $1,500. Was was that ever a a consideration or a discussion amongst you and your friends of the the extreme price of it? no. No, no, no. Well, see, in hindsight, I know behind the scenes they weren't desperate. What's what's amazing – you know, there's there's two parts to this. There's me as a kid going with friends – on a big adventure road trip and having what happened to us happen to us. And I'll, and I haven't even said that. And then there's years later starting with that and then finding out the reasons. And even some of the, some of the things that nobody ever stopped to think about or put two and two together because, you know, con, you know, the convention itself, Houston con should have been just fine. What happened was it got tethered. It was the same people doing both, but they were meant to be different entities. What happened was, when the wheels came off the ultimate fantasy wagon on the Friday and the Saturday, because on one hand, people thought that the, the people involved, especially the, the main guy in the middle, Jerry Wilhite, who's mentioned in the Starlog article, people thought he, oh, he must've been a crook. You know, he must've taken the money and run, that was the thing. Oh, he's taken, he's gone to Mexico with the money or something ridiculous. Well, the truth was there was no money to run off with. And th- there's, all the way down to shifting the blame from the team and, and not being incompetent, a little naive maybe, but not being incompetent, to the fact that there actually may have been a conspiracy to blow the whole thing up from old school rivals across town and even the point where the um, every town has a, 
like Ticketron and Ticketmaster we were talking there. But every town when a you know rock concert comes to town or a tr- big traveling road musical or something or something big like that that's at an arena, you know, a civic auditorium or an arena now, that there's almost always the cities have like a monopoly production company that handles handles it for them. And they also do their promotion, their advertising and their ticket selling and all that. Well, the company in Houston at the time that did that was called Pace Productions. And when they got word of this big show, this ticketed show on the side of the regular convention that they were selling for, you know, those ticket prices and that they were there were the cheap seats and the middle seats. And then they had floor seats on the arena there. It's where the Denver Nuggets played. It's it's, uh, you know, it's oh, a, Houston it's, Rockets uh, played there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the Houston Rockets. Uh, it's in Houston. Duh. But that was the Houston Rockets NBA home at the time for years and years and years, you know. Uh, before it became, uh, you know, before it became a, a a church the way it is now, a mega church. But and when um, you look at who played there in 1982, it was all huge acts. Billy Joel yeah. was there in 1982. Yes. So in the between, Go-Go's were at their prime in '82. They were yeah. they were having arena tours. In Iron between the Houston Rockets the games, there. it was just on and on. It yes. was it was a hot spot arena. So they they were able to rent that, and of course it has all the audio and the visual and the special effects and the big screens and all of that was was part of this. And they covered over the basketball floor and put more seats on the. So the thing was supposed to hold uh, seventeen hundred something, eighteen hundred. They added a few hundred seats on the floor that were really high dollar, you know, it's like seventeen thousand. Yeah, yeah. So the whole so the thing was what we've reconstructed even was that early on when they heard about this, Pace Productions called their office. They had rented an office and had a little incorporation and uh, said, hey, we're congratulations on doing this show. Hi, we're the big guys in town. We handle all of these. We know you're young. Like they were all in their 20s and 30s. They were not incompetent. And they could handle everything from the production aspects to promotion to all of that. They were totally on top of the skill. What they didn't have was the savvy to know how the real world worked in a lot of ways. And they basically said, hey, we'll come in and do all that stuff for you, you know, and only take 40% of the of your profit, you know, or whatever. And Jerry and the team said, being naive and new at this, I mean, they weren't kids, but they were new to big scale production. And they basically said, no, no, thank you. That's, we got, we got it, we got it, thanks. Well, what they didn't get was, now they look like they're renegades. So now they look like, I mean, in the way the world worked, you know, it's almost like a shakedown, except that was just the way things work. They were a monopoly producer. And so they what we've decided now is somehow, and they had the contract with Ticketron before it merged into Ticketmaster. They had the contract. We basically think that and all these people are long gone. This was 40 years ago. So this is all, you know, there's nobody to go after, even if you want to do it. They should have at the time. And we even heard secondhandedly that. The hotel, the old Shamrock Hilton, even though it wasn't part of the show, but there were ripple effects, and there was a side saga happening at the hotel, which was overbooked on groups and group space. They had four groups at the hotel, and the Trekkie kids, I'm air quoting, were the bottom of the barrel, and when they got a whiff that there was trouble with the arena show, and it might even go bankrupt and not happen, they worried about getting paid themselves, even though they had been paid with uh, you know, limitless credit cards. It, it, all the rooms had been reserved the way the con team reserved rooms at all the hotels around town for years, and it was the standard procedure. But they got scared. This is the Hilton, not the arena. They got scared 
and demanded that everybody come in and pay for their rooms again. So at the same time, people are showing up and not even knowing about the problems at the arena. What really hit people like me first was that we showed up wanting to check into our room because you bought it. You could buy a pack. The bottom line package was get your room, your con ticket, and your arena ticket all together. You know, that was the that was the bottom line package. And that was what you did? Or? And that's what we did. And we show yes. up and we're saying, sorry, you have to uh, pay again. You know, you have to take you it up with the – Do remember how much uh, that package was? Oh, I, I've got a memo somewhere. It was – you know, today it seems so cheap. It was probably it was like probably a hundred bucks, one hundred and fifty bucks or something. Okay, so it was doable then. Yeah, and it, you know it was a group, so we had a group of four, so we had four in a room, you know, because that was the old school. <laughs> you know, people would sleep on the floor, bring a sleeping bag, whatever. Um, it was just four. It wasn't like we had nine, which is another thing that happens, all, you know, all the time or used to all the time. You know, we show and we're like, oh my god! So, we, but we wanted to see them. I was finally going to see DeForest Kelly live, as well as everybody else. I mean that was the big thing for me, and um, and we our group just to cut so that I mean that was one of the drama things. Then there was they they got wind that this ripple effect from the show the show might not happen at the arena, and this was like you know a mile mile and a half apart from the the Shamrock Hilton, which the convention center part is still there. The hotel was torn down in the eighties, very set. It was built right after World War II. It was a big ballyhoo. They had Hollywood stars come out. It was like an oil guys. You know, crazy hotel out in this in the pasture, but the way Houston developed didn't embrace it. So after a while, it kind of became on the side, and you know, and it got a little seedy. And by the '80s, they tore it down, and now it's it's all the big Houston, all the hospitals. It's like the medical area of town. The 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 university hospitals and the private ones are all right. The medical center is all right in there, and the convention center aspect wasn't torn. The the multi you know, the whatever 40 story tall hotel was torn down, but the convention center, the couple of stories of that, which where the where the convention happened, that's actually still in Houston. And we went there and, and filmed some bit. We got permission to go in and film some bits there. But what I'm saying is the the arena, the summit arena was its name where the where the uh, Rockets played at the time and all the big shows came to town. You know, and every town has at least one of those, if not two or three. Um, that was like a mile and a half, and so they had shuttle buses set up that were supposed to take you back over. And there were three shows. There were two on, you know, an afternoon and an evening Saturday, and then a Sunday noonish one. And uh, basically, what happened was, up until that time, they had been getting reports. Now back over on on the Ultimate Fantasy, they'd been getting reports that the thing was close to people who called on phone lines were being told it was sold out, and that's what people <laughs> on the crew and staff were hearing. And then it comes to find out that on Thursday and the Friday, they start to go, no, it's not. And they're getting reports from the ticket places. Instead of having 17,000 a night, you know, whatever, they're going to have 1,000, 1,200, and 800. Like Which feels cavernous. like empty when you're in a big arena like Exactly, that. exactly. Well, how, how does this happen, though? How did they not know until what right, right before it happened that they only had 1,000 a, a tickets sold? Well, part of it was their team was they were they were biting off an awful lot, and to their credit, they actually got. But they were like building the stage, and they had this revolving delta-shaped stage for the talk show segment. And you know, they had this. Walter had written a one-act kind of a reader's theater play where they weren't calling themselves Starfleet, but that you basically know, like Michelle was the communications officer, and Scotty was the engineer, and they basically stood at music stands like reader's theater. 
and read the script that Walter wrote, and then they used the big, you know, the big screens up in the as as view screens. And the whole thing was that their captain had been kidnapped. You know, Shatner wasn't a part of this, but everyone else was, including Kirstie, including Merritt. And um, I don't think D D wasn't part of it, but everybody else was. And and that was the last thing. And then Shatner had like a standard convention, you know, 30, 40 minutes to himself at the end of it. But before that was a talk show. They had a laser show. I mean, that should all be in the in the program too. And that was that was part of your deal. Well, part of the thing was that happened to me was showing up. We had this room fiasco, and at the same time, I knew that they were supposed to be having a big press event where the cast came in and met fans and press, and it was supposed to be you know, some light snacks and stuff. Well, that was falling apart because the cast already knew about what was happening with the arena. They, they almost lost the arena because there was no money to pay for audiovisual rentals and a lot of that. So things were happening as the actors flew in, and we know, we know this now. At the time, my experience was we showed up. We're immediately there's an army of people with their luggage through the hotel lobby and spilling out onto the parking lot on a June day in Houston. So it's hot and humid <laughs> and the air conditioning's probably overworked. There are three other groups in the hotel too, but all these Trekkie kids are sitting around with their suitcases. They can't check in unless they they have to just pay their bill like they hadn't paid anything. People are mad, they're like confused, what's going on? And one person from the con staff um, that was a young woman who was running around trying to answer people's questions, and people were you know, confused, mad, angry, flustered. What are we doing? I'm not paying again. What my group wound up doing, I mean, ironically, they eventually wound it up with the hotel where they, people weren't supposed to have to do that. But that took a day and a half to get down. Most people didn't know this. Most people were, would have been told by Sunday they could have come up and got a refund if they just asked for it. But most people didn't. We stayed long enough to go to the show on Saturday, uh, Saturday afternoon. We saw the – no, yeah, we saw the first one. And then we went back to the convention, went through the dealer's room, you know, went to a couple of panels. And then we decided we were going to take off since we – rather than pay another night there, we'd done everything we wanted to do. We drove on down to Galveston. None of us had been. We went on down to the coast and saw the beach and saw saw the gulf. And none of us had done that before. So we stayed at a little motel along the way and did that and and went to Sea Aquarium or Sea Arama or something, uh, you know, with dolphins and whale shows and all that. And we went to the beach and um, went to this uh, aquatic theme park and then and then drove back home. <laughs> and well, that's uh, great. That's a that's yeah. a great vacation. Yeah. That, that's what we did. And but but I knew watching what had gone on. In the meanwhile, what we didn't know since we took off, you know, Saturday morning, um, we took off Saturday night and drove down, got the motel late, got up Sunday morning, did all that, and then drove straight home Sunday all through Sunday. Again, it was like six to eight hours, I forget. But um, that's that's what we did. What I found out later on was and started seeing the you know the the Starlog reporting and you'd see the chatter. Oh my God, this blew up. It was it blew up, but it blew up in 1982 slow motion. You know, newsletters and fanzines and and the rumor mill at conventions and clubs, but uh, you know, hand you know, club to club newsletters going around. But we found out the whole thing about the Con of Wrath was that weekend we were there, we were starting to hear people. It wasn't the ultimate fantasy. We heard it called the ultimate fiasco. The you know, I I don't know if you know this, but sometimes fans can be snarky. So <laughs> really, okay, that yeah. So that weekend it was already being called the ultimate fiasco. 
the ultimate uh what can i say here the ultimate f up um and but somebody on sunday came up with this and it's the one that stuck they were like because this this weekend was literally two weeks after the wrath of khan opened so it was huge right and so many people were like oh this is this is you know it was number one box office for a while and people were so and a lot of people that phrase now this is more like it that's what they thought and you know they were so paramount's basking in that glow and all the actors are and fandom is all like haha you're like yay see we still can compete with the upstarts like star wars you know and indiana jones raiders the lost ark was big in 82 so that was the it was a glow and what what hard bit it and the actors were worried about aside from you know having it blow up in their face and the actors not get paid and have this great weekend you know they, they've got two weeks of this glow having it all blow up and hard was afraid that somewhere some whiff of scandal or fraud or something if that's what's going on and he thought there was somewhere but what he was worried about that that would all blow back on Star Trek is the franchise. I, you know, it wasn't even big. It was just the original series people still. But the whole – everything that was new and bright and shiny and pointing you – know, they already knew they were going to do a sequel. So this exciting new life for Star Trek, as well as you know, corporately Paramount, was all threatened if this became a huge blow-up sequel. And by the end of the day, there were news crews from local stations coming out because fans were calling news stations and saying, hey, there's something going on. They're ripping us off here at this thing. It's a fraud. It's a – you know. And there were new, and the the biggest newswoman in Houston at the time, one of the one of the crew people later on told me, was chasing him around trying to get him to talk about it. He's like, I don't, you know. And the convention itself was okay, but they were having ripple effects from the rumor mill coming out of the arena and things not getting paid and it might shut down. And if that happened, what does that mean for, you know, the money behind the con? Even though they, they supposedly and they would have been. That's what made them mad that they, this whole thing with the rooms, to the point where. The hotel was not only making people repay rooms in the beginning for the first couple of days. They were about to th to shut down the convention and yank their facility space because they thought they wouldn't get paid. And the dealers heard this, and they started passing a hat to people to chip in money just to keep the convention open, which was insane. I heard that they made an announcement over the loudspeaker mm -hmm. that they needed $20,000 in cash immediately. And they brought out garbage bags, and people yes. were throwing money in garbage bags. Did, did yes. you witness anything like that? I, you know, I, I know that was happening. Uh, I don't remember seeing a vivid. I think I remember hearing the murmur and the chatter because when we were there, we were trying to, you know, after we decided just to stay one night, we were trying to scrape what we could out of, of the convention experience. I, I went around the dealers' room at least once. We went through an autograph. I was very disappointed because my whole point was. I wanted DeForest Kelly's autograph. He was my favorite. <laughs> I had a couple, you know, that we'd got. I had like George's and Walter's and Grace Lee Whitney's by then, but there were a lot of the cast I still didn't have. And he was my favorite. And it was going to be a, and none of the big cast of the regulars, the autograph, they did sign autographs, we found out later, but the communication was so crazy. We went to an autograph room, but it was just, I say just, it was just Kirsty. It was the new kids, Kirsty and Merritt, and Laura Banks, who was one of Khan's women, the one that actually pushed the phaser button that <laughs> that, that you know blew up the Enterprise, uh, and kill, she said killed Spock. But Laura Banks got herself into this and got herself into the guest lineup, and Mark Leonard, and Carrie O'Quinn, who was the publisher of Starlog, who got volunteered into being the host of the talk show part at the arena show. 
and he also spoke at the regular con. There was kind of an overlap. So I've got my autographs, and there was nothing to have. You know, I I have Kirsty's signature on a black and white cast photo that they took in the Maroons. You know, that were all new. So we went through that line and got, the, but I didn't get my autograph or meet or shake DeForest Kelly's hand or anything, much less anybody else. They did it some other point in the weekend, but I didn't see it. So my memory of the weekend at the con is walking around the dealer's room, getting the autographs um, and the drama to get our tickets to go over to the show. There was supposed to be a, sh- there was supposed to be a shuttle bus that they were going to have screenings of Rathacon and the motion picture, and that blew up. That didn't happen. And we did finally – I can't remember if we got on a bus or if we got a taxi or what. We, oh, we had our car. We drove over to the arena, to the summit, to the summit arena to go to the show. But what was crazy was when we checked in finally and got our packet, there were no tickets to the show in it. Now, what I know now is that all the tickets that were pre-sold that were supposed to be in the, in the attendees' packets, that was the whole point, uh, they didn't have the paper tickets. They had you know, like dozens – if not hundreds of the hardcore that were there for the weekend who didn't – they didn't have tickets to give them. So – and I thought it was just us. Now I know this was a widespread issue. So we started to get desperate. We've got – what? There's no tickets. to think. So I'm, hey, 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 where's our tickets? Uh, you have to talk to so-and-so. You have to – so it turns out that um, they were trying to get people their tickets. What's funny is I wound up meeting the woman who was out – from the convention who was out trying to trying to talk to fans and solve you know the crisis problems she finally said i felt like this she's like okay okay what you do is i'm gonna have tickets for you they're gonna be better than what you paid for just meet me over at the arena at this gate these doors and they were like concrete you know doors going down to um i found out later as we interviewed her her name was Catherine scarrett and she wrote this letter after this was all over, apologizing to everybody who was on the pre-sale list. She had been in fandom. She wrote this letter that said, I am so, so sorry. Here's what I can tell you right now. Nobody made any money at this, but I guess my name is Mud in fandom. I will probably be you know, excoriated to the, you know, to the end of my days over this fiasco. I just want – I felt you, you were owed an explanation and an apology if you bought a package, those big high dollar pack, none of that stuff happened. There were no tours out to NASA, to Man Space, to Johnson Spacecraft Center. None of that. There were no trips to Galveston. The whole that whole thing fell apart. They yeah, were just the trying Starbuck to get out. The article relates that mm-hmm. only nine people bought that big package. Well, there you go. That was part of it. But I find out later, Catherine Skerritt was her name, and she just passed about a week, a year or two ago. But. She did – this was so funny. She met me. Like we got there. Everybody stood in line at the will call because we didn't know what to do. We had no idea that there weren't like a million people already in – hundreds of people already inside and hundreds of people coming because we were in line with you know a few dozen people. And I had been t- – heaven forbid we were texting or calling. No, no, no. This was all like she told me, meet her at the – so I'm like at the back of the arena, like the freight doors – and the concrete ramps going in, and it's just her and me, and I'm walking around this huge summit arena on the outside in broad day, in the heat of June. I find I see her standing in this big open area, like the freight doors are closed. And I, okay, well there she is. And I go and she counts out the tickets for me, and she hands us our four tickets, and they're all like comp tickets. They were like what you would have given as freebies to like if you had prizes or something. You'd 
give them for giveaways. She had yeah, they usually give those tickets. out to radio stations back then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So she hands me four comp tickets that don't have seat numbers on them, and she goes, here, just sit on the floor. And I'm like, we didn't pay for the big floor. She says, it's fine, it's fine, which is exactly what they did. But the whole time, I'm like, oh, this is the most bizarre thing. And later on, it's like it's like we were doing our own little drug deal back there or something, <laughs> just to get the tickets that we'd paid for for this arena show. Like it wasn't something, you know, like we weren't doing anything nefarious. So I come back in, we get inside, and then I go, all of that sweat over getting in and getting the tickets, and will we meet her? And are they going to screw us and all this stuff? We get in, it's like there's there's nobody here. <laughs> it's like ah uh, yeah, they weren't all inside. There's the time we saw it, there were like, you know, what did I say? A thousand people in a 17,000 foot, 17,000 seat arena. And it's like, oh, okay. And then even then, as they started each show, Har Bennett would say, people would go up and sit in their actual, somehow they got seats that had seat numbers. And they're up in the nosebleed section or the middle section. You know, they're actually in a number. And there's nobody around them. You know, there's two people, then you skip. 200 seats and there's two people then you skip 200 and Har bennett says if you're up in the nosebleed section come just sit on the floor like we want an audience because they're on the stage you know and they'd say a joke and it'd be a <laughs> you know you'd have this <laughs> you know you could hear a pin drop kind of thing and they were like Duh. but the part of this thing that's like everything that the basic package the convention and the show the bottom line this is what walter says and a lot of the rest of them the bottom line was the show went on, and there was there were some crazy backstage things happening at the arena. The rubber, the weather satellite balloon that was supposed to be a planet that they popped with a laser, which was a cheap and easy but a really cool effect. One show, one of the professionals there told one of the one of the uh, young crew from the show who did pyro to add to to use different chemical mix, and it made it hotter. And so instead of just popping, the rubber balloon caught fire, and it was you know basically exploded but then it was like flying burning rubber glops were it was a good thing the place wasn't full of people because there would have been a lot of burned people anyway there are so many like wacky stories like that but the bottom line was they got through all three shows and gave everybody what they paid for at the arena there was just no money for anybody and the actors that some of them got a little money half of what they were owed whatever but you know they were robbing the convention to pay them. But a lot of people, you know, a lot of the vendors didn't get paid. It was just at the end, and at the after it was over, Jerry basically said, "I will accept all the blame for this. I'll resign from our board." You know, they wound up liquidating the. There was no money. They liquidated all the dreams about going on to other cities. That was all out the window. The convention, more or less, half the convention part, more or less, happened. But people had been through the drama of the rooms. The drama of not knowing, the hearing the rumors from the arena, you know, the things that didn't happen that were supposed to, whether it was the shuttle buses to screenings and the shuttle buses over to the arena, or even the the nine people that had a vacation, you know, package. So that's so on the day there were button makers. There still are, I guess. So on the day we found the girl who was going to dinner with her friends, and she's telling me this later. They're coming back from dinner. They'd walk somewhere to eat, and she, they're coming back, and they were coming up with joke names for the weekend. And she said, "She said, no, you guys, I got it. We have just survived the con of wrath for the wrath of con. <laughs> and, uh, you know, funny. Oh, those fans, snarky fans. But she, they went back to the dealer's room, and a couple of the button makers made up really quick buttons. 
and made them up for them or sold them or whatever. You know, it was like, okay, we we staggered through three days and it's almost over now. You know, and the dealers were losing their shirts. Nobody made enough money to to make it a worthwhile weekend. And then some of them were actually like doing the put money in the they kept the door, they came to an agreement and kept the doors open. So, you know, they raised they put you know a couple of hundred dollars and it wasn't twenty thousand, but they they huddled and ran around and sweated and argued and said, Look, here's my these American Express cards that we've always used to reserve rooms for. Whatever happened finally happened. They had a judge. An elected official came in who had kids that in fandom, and this is you know this is before these were still just the crazy sci-fi kids and the tra- the crazy Trekkie kids. This wasn't like a legit business thing. The most legit it might have been was you know maybe some cheesy traveling carnival or something with the dealer aspect in there. So there was like very little respect going on here as far as like trusting the business sense of all this and the legitimacy. It wasn't like. You know the doc, the local doctors' convention, or something, or the pharmacy reps, or the accountants were, the CPAs were in here. This was just the Trekkie kids and the sci-fi kids. So the fact that they negotiated away and didn't close down and didn't do all that, but yeah, so by Sunday there were actually some, and I've got two different versions in my collection of uh, I survived the Con of Wrath buttons that weekend. By the Sunday, as people were leaving, that was a thing. So in that, so, you know, it wasn't, it didn't melt down Twitter that weekend because there wasn't. Harv Bennett, though, did get a hold of all of his friends in network news. He used to work at ABC Network in New York, but he had had contacts with all three of the, you know, and that's what news was then, and said, if you get stories coming out of Houston about Star Trek and Paramount ripping off fans at this fiasco convention, just ignore it. It's misunderstanding. It's the locals, but he got it squashed nationally. So if there was some local, and there was, there were some news stories in in the paper, um, like for a day or two, and then uh, and then a news story, you know, on the TV news that night. And we somebody used to have a PR service did a clip of those TV stories, but we've not been able to find it. I'd love to have that, but um, but you know, other than that, and everybody locally who thought this was going to be their big ticket to production, and they would, and they'd go on it, and they would do rock shows. They would do some more, you know. They would do this on the road, and they'd make so much money that they would be producers, and they would, you know, get to do this and have the glamour life and travel and do all that. Well, that all went out. The- and some of them quit their day jobs. This is people in their twenties, younger people, and maybe early thirties. And the ones that quit their day jobs had to go back into something and find some, you know. So there was the local group. The actors from Hollywood, the Star Trek cast and crew that were there, the dealers that were there, and then the local fandom or the the fans that attended. And there's all these stories circling. And some people, I talked to some fans that come in, they go, oh, well, I didn't go to the, the arena show. I went to the convention. The convention was fine. Or people said, I, I didn't even go to the convention. I just bought my – I drove into town or I flew in to go to that show, The Ultimate Fantasy, and it was everything I could ever have – I didn't care that it was empty. I got to see everybody on stage and the talk show was awesome and hear them tell jokes and Michelle sang and it was she sang she didn't have an orchestra the way it was planned she wound up you know with a tape recording they had a small eight piece combo that played but they didn't have the big orchestra that was the original but you know there are some people that say was there a, was there a controversy was there a problem I, everything I paid for I got so it's well, that's really right. some people it, did enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Well, I think everybody enjoyed it. The people that, you know, had a heart attack were the actors and especially the convention organizers. And what's funny was when we started working on this, all but one of the core team 
still live in Houston. A couple of have now passed. One was in Seattle, and we talked to him. At the same time, we went up and talked to Wendy Doohan, Jimmy's widow, you know, his younger, much younger wife, but they stayed married the rest of their lives. I mean, she's still with us and had a couple of kids even. But she talked for Jimmy, who's, you know, passed. And of course, Dee's passed. But at the time, we've talked to, uh, I talked to Harv Bennett before he died. I was the last real interview to, to talk with him. Basically, Harv came in and saved it and calmed people down. He calmed the actors down. Walter went to the arena and took over for the, the local kids will dispute this. I say kids, they're now in their 50s and you know 60s. They say they had everything in control, but Harv wanted to make sure that if they were going to do the show, that it was professionally produced and all that. So Walter jumped in and started working with the lights and camera and sound and all the stage pieces. Uh, and the local guys that were going to do it still did it, but they felt a little myth that, you know, but you can't get mad at Chekhov. But he was doing that. Meanwhile, Harv was calming the waters, as he said, with uh, the actors because he said he walked in and saw all the fans. He said it was like a sea of homeless people with luggage when he walked in the hobby, the <laughs> lobby of the hotel. <laughs> anyway, and he said, uh, who was it? Oh, Walter says Harv came up to him and said, Walter, we got to get this under control or it's all this will blow up and everything about Star Trek will be over. We, we just had the movie, but this will blow. This is threatens everything we've we've just accomplished. And so they took it very seriously, and Harv jumped in and, you know, went in and met the people, you know, Jerry and the team running the show, saw what was going on, and said, okay, this is what we're going to do, the, and, you know, and got it done. And they didn't care so much, but they went in Friday afternoon in front of all the fans that knew that the press conference was there. A lot of people just rushed the room. The hotel did not bring the little snack food <laughs> when all this blew up. They're like, don't take food out there. And there's we, we call it the I call it the uh, bullhorn press conference because they didn't even have mics set up in AV. But here's here's everybody coming in to see them. But here's like banquet tables laid across one end of the room. Here's Harv. But here's Jimmy and Dee and Walter and George and Nichelle and that new girl that's going to be in this movie that we just. Oh, oh yeah. That what's her name? Christy Kirstie Alley. She was in the movie. She's here. And that other guy, you know, and so they were all there. And answering and trying to come, but Harv was kind of the main, you know, spoke for everybody and said, we're just as confused as you are talking to the audience and the press and the fans and said, but we, we're going to make things right and we're going to make this weekend go. And I can't give you all the answers you're wondering about, but as far as our end of things go, we're here. By golly, let's do a show. And, um, and they didn't have microphones, so they actually had a bullhorn and they were passing the bullhorn back and forth. I've always called it the Bullhorn Press Conference. That's that's cool, though. So so it, it's interesting to learn that Harv Bennett is the one that saved it, and he doesn't even you know do a lot of cons, but he must have had you know he was like like the leader, like take control yeah. of this and yeah. Well, I think I think in the day, no, he didn't. He need to go out. He didn't need to go on the circuit, you know, and and hustle himself. I think he saw it as a as a producer level person. I think, you know, and we didn't have the big com it's not like today you'd say, Well, you have to go to San Diego Comic Con and or New York Comic Con and then find something big in Europe, you know, like you're you're like strategizing your promotional tactics, you know, in your schedule. Um or if there's something big somewhere else special, go to that and be there and promote there. Back then it was I think his attitude was like, Well, let's find this was obviously big and special and internal. 
they came out, they used their contacts with, with George and they'd had George and Jimmy and Walter as guests at Houston Con before. So they started there, worked with them, got Walter all excited. Walter's also the reason why everybody came and he could not talk Leonard into it. In fact, he does an impersonation of his conversation with Leonard. And then at the very last minute, you know, Leonard decided to go and they didn't take him. But Walter was there in with the inner circle and they, you know, they didn't just deal with, well, they had some agents, but they basically, they, you know, they talked Shatner into being there, although he kind of had his own little isolated corner. He didn't mix with anybody else. He wasn't part of the talk show. Basically, all he did the weekend, what he had a thing set up for his fan club on the side. But basically at the show, he came out and had the last half hour, like a, like you'd think as a, as a Q&A with the fans, you know, do, do some talk. He'd gotten some Western clothes and all duded himself up, which was kind of funny. And then he just did Q&A with the audience and a couple of times had people come up on stage with him on this revolving, slowly revolting Delta-shaped stage that they built and actually got to work. But um, but yeah, so that was, you know, Harv, I think, would have – and he, as he did, he would get one or two big cons in the year that were influential, and he would go there. But he didn't put himself – you know, and then after five – he, you know, fired himself from Star Trek when they didn't do his movie and, you know, walked away from Star Trek. So it was only those six or seven years that he was. At. And then years later, of course, he came back and as an older gentleman retired and did the con circuit and uh, and, you know, met a lot of people and, and got to catch up a little bit. But when he was still actively producing and having a career, when he was no longer part of Star Trek, then he, you know, he didn't really go out and do that at cons. Right. Well, Larry, thank you so much for I was gonna say, I think your we're... experiences going to this con of wrath. Tell our listeners where they could find out more about all that you do. Well, and and well, thank you for asking. So just my website, LarryNimichek.com, is kind of a central hub. But you know, I do I just had my sixth anniversary doing Trekland Tuesdays Live, my live stream show that you can watch on YouTube. Uh, at 1 p.m. Tuesdays Pacific and 4 Eastern, and the Europeans can catch it in, in the evenings. Um, and then every week, also on Tuesday, I have my podcast from Roddenberry called The Trek Files, where we get some something out of Gene's files, and I have a professional guest or someone from the Trek family or the industry in to talk about it. And a lot of times we we update it for today. So we look at something from the original or next gen or even, or even some other aspect of Gene's life and or Majel's life. Um, in the industry or his other projects, you know, famous or not, and find a way to have somebody talk about it now. And we even have people who've written books about the Trek family, and we find, you know, something. Uh, Grace Lee Whitney's son did a book about her, and or did something else besides her own book, or you know, whatever. We always have somebody really relevant to talk, and they're they're just fifteen twenty minutes, so they're a pretty short bite. But we've we've been at that for uh, five years. And then I have my Trekland tours, uh, day tours. If you ever want to come and have your own away mission around LA, we go to you plan it, but I help you plan. And then I lead four stops in a day for location sites used somewhere across all of Star Trek that were used around the greater Los Angeles from the original series through Picard. You know, not the, not the Canadian ones around Toronto, obviously, but that. So that's a thing I've started doing, but uh, Portal 47 is my backstage. Uh, service monthly package and that's we have guests from backstage of all kind writers and producers and you know makeup and costumes and props and vegetables all the people we say portal 47 is for all the star trek have no idea how much star trek they still have no idea about e even even today <laughs> 
so that's that's kind of where I've where I've gone. And then yes, the Con of Wrath is my doc. We've been working on it for a long time. I thought we'd have it wrapped up now, and we we've gotten most of it in place. We just have to post it and get it edited and put out. And the pandemic kind of slowed us down. And uh, but we're back on that. So I, I really really want to get this story told for um for the for the gang in Houston especially because all of them, you know, they had to live the disappointment of this. And then as the years went by and they got on with their life, nobody jumped off a bridge over it, you know, they got on with their lives, but all, and they all, a lot of them stayed in touch, but I think they all told me in their own way, they thought, you know, somebody really needs to do this story. This, this should not die with us. This is kind of a, a wacky, crazy. It really is like a Phoenix arising from the ashes as much as we saw oh, the, you know, the biggest debacle of a convention ever. And there have been other conventions that have, you know, a similar story. People would tell me, and I was at a couple of them actually. Uh, but um, but this was like a golden time. There were no other Star Treks. Pop culture wasn't huge. It wasn't industrialized. There was no internet, you know, or so. And it was really a, a simpler time, a gentler time. And it was the original Star Trek cast. And um, yeah, and this group in Houston that thought they were going to pull up. And if a couple of things had gone separate differently, uh, they might have. But um, anyway, it's it's an amazing story and deserves to be told. And we, we need to get it finished, and we will. <laughs> well, thank you again, Larry. Thank you. Thank you for having me. look forward to seeing you on Thanksgiving weekend in Indianapolis. Oh, great. Yes, you'll be there. We'll meet up then. As always, we're going to close by discussing one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog magazine. This one is a long column ad that's associated with one of the articles or that shares space with one of the articles in the magazine. It's entitled, Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura of Star Trek, Exclusive Limited Edition. For the millions who left her singing in the Star Trek TV episode, Conscience of the King, Nichelle Nichols, one of Hollywood's most beautiful and talented performers, has at last recorded Beyond Antares, an ethereal melody filled with the lure of space, showcasing the rich range of her exciting voice. So there's a coupon you could cut out. Send cash, check, or money order to Nichelle's Record at Starlog Magazine, New York, New York. It's only $3 plus $1 postage and handling or two. These are 45 records. Remember, they're small. Two for five fifty to the same address plus $1 postage. So it's a 45 of of just her singing that one song. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that it has a color sleeve. That was a frustration of mine when I would get 45s, is if you didn't get a picture sleeve, it would just be a, a generic sleeve with a hole in the middle so you could see the song titles. Oh, yeah, some of those, yeah. <laughs> so So that sounds like a pretty good deal right there. Yeah. Fantastic that Michelle was active in singing during this time period i I mean the fans would would love that that she recorded that song just so you could have that one song because yeah because it was great seeing it on the episode and the episodes were not as readily available back then yeah so again two-sided uhura's theme on one side beyond antares on the other side never had it as a kid but i would have listened to it i would have liked it yeah i would have loved to hear it Thanks for listening to us. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and give us positive feedback on your podcast app. Your five-star reviews are always welcome. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.
All I have to do is push this little red button. Were I to invoke logic, logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. You're the one. You're my superior officer. You are also my friend. I have been and always shall be yours.